0: Hello, and welcome to the Victory Podcast. I'm your host, Monique Watson. On this episode, I sat down with my dad, Troy Henry. We talked a bit about what it was like uh, ascending through the corporate ladder in the 80s and 90s throughout various uh, businesses, and tips for people who are looking to make that same crime in the corporate ladder today, as well as those who are looking to go into business for themselves. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening.
1: I'm your host Winnie Watson. Today I have the wonderful pleasure to have someone who's literally known me all of my life uh, and before, <laughs> uh, my father, uh, Troy Henry. How's it going, Dad?
2: I'm doing just fine, baby. I'm doing just fine.
1: <laughs> I was debating trying to see, do I try and be like, oh, and call you Troy throughout, but it just feels weird uh-huh. um, to say. <laughs> Be dad all through this interview.
2: All right, that's what I'm used Um, to you calling me, so that's fine.
1: So, uh, just for our listeners, I'll give a quick little outline of where we're going to go today. Um, We'll talk a little bit about um, my dad's background, um, some of his educational professional background. How it was climbing uh, earlier in his career through the corporate ladder in the 80s and 90s as an African American. Um, some of those challenges that he faced, what made him leave the corporate kind of world, corporate America, and starting out on his own as an entrepreneur, and hopefully he'll share a couple of good tips for folks who maybe are thinking of making that leap, um, and then, of course, at the end, give them the opportunity to promote any upcoming activities or just say hi and bye to the folks. All right. Yeah, let's get into it. So tell the, the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, the, how we know each other's.
2: Clearly been (laughs) established. Leave a little about yourself. Okay, I am a native of New Orleans. I'm 60 years old at this time in 2021. I um, am a father of five, of which my daughter Monique, who's the interviewer, is my second child. And uh, the one that they say most resembles me from a physical appearance standpoint. Um, <laughs> I uh, grew up in the lower ninth ward of New Orleans, and then uh, subsequently moved to the ninth ward of New Orleans on Pontchartrain Park, um, went to a high school called St. Augustine High School, which is the only African American Catholic all boys high school in the country as far as I'm aware of, and it's been in existence now for 70 years. Uh, with a strong academic focus to it. Um, had great years there, met a lot of friends, uh, a lot of lifelong friends who uh, met and uh, at St. Augustine. Uh, then after leaving there, went to uh, college in California at uh, Stanford University in um, Palo Alto, California. And uh, studied uh, engineering, uh, electrical engineering, and uh, also got a degree in African and African-American studies as well, two bachelors out of Stanford University. Met a lot of good folks there as well, really um, a lot of exposure um, to parts of the world and a way of life, a way of thinking um, that, you know, being a little guy from inner city, New Orleans, had uh, never really uh, had been exposed to. So... Um, Stanford was an excellent experience, a very challenging um, academic environment for me. And uh, but I, I felt like I was able to navigate it and and exit out of it um, pretty successfully. Um, left Stanford and um, decided to go to get a, um, a a master's degree, and I ended up with a presidential fellowship. I had a number of opportunities to go to. Different schools, but ended up with a presidential fellowship in, uh, from Carnegie Mellon um, University and uh, ended up going there and um, getting um, two master's degrees one in electrical engineering and one in biomedical engineering. You know, so after that, I, I kind of decided that I would go into the corporate world and get an engineering job. Um, started working for Hewlett Packard, um, designing uh, medical instruments. So the cardiac monitors, bedside monitors that you see in hospitals today. The ones that were manufactured by Hewlett Packard back in the mid eighties. I was one of the designers of uh, those systems. So it was kind of fun. Did that for a couple years and then decided that uh, just didn't really, wasn't a fan at that time of the climate of the uh, New England, Boston area and decided to migrate to uh, the Washington DC metropolitan area. And began working for IBM there, and uh, took a little bit of an industry change um, because the industry I was in obviously was the, the medical devices industry uh, was was one, but then I uh, ended up doing defense contractor work. Um, so I, I, I went I went to work for IBM um, designing um, uh, sonar systems for Los Angeles class attack submarines. Um, And that was kind of an interesting uh, work. It was okay. Then at that point in time, I sort of decided that as I got a little bit more exposed to engineering, um, I decided that I wanted to be able to make decisions as opposed to just doing work. And so that's when I began my curiosity into sort of managerial opportunities. took on a project, took on my first program management opportunity at that point in time um, for a uh, uh, trainer system um, for uh, the lamps helicopter simulator lamps helicopter I was a assistant project manager for that. And then went on and uh, took on another project management was an educational product that um, IBM was developing. And I was the lead project manager on that. So got got a little bit of a taste of the business side of the world at that point in time. Um, I think that's roughly about the time IBM was sold the defense um, industry was sold, or federal systems was sold to a company, uh, Laurel which later became Lockheed Martin, um, and I was working then, I began working with um, an IDIQ contract for the federal government, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract for the uh, federal government. Did that for a while, it was okay, I decided I wanted to go back to IBM, and um, IBM was just starting up this services business that they had decided to migrate into and uh, got into that business and uh, decided to go through the management ranks there ended up running the services business for healthcare insurance and pharmaceuticals um for um, ibm for a while and we began outsourcing you know data centers and uh, functionality for major corporations in those industries and um, so that was kind of fun for a while and then I, I later uh, was recruited by this crazy company in Houston, Texas, um, called Enron. Enron. In- 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 and um, have hmm. Well, I heard that name
1: before.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Enron um, recruited me to come to Houston. Uh, part of our negotiations was I really wanted to get back to New Orleans after him being gone at that point in time, twenty years. And so I told them I'd take the job if they would move me to New Orleans and allow me to, to commute to Houston. They agreed. Um, and I headed up a group um, of the um, industrial sector for Enron Energy Services, uh, which when I got there was doing about a negative $100 million, not negative $75 million in business. They were hemorrhaging cash. Um, was able to turn that around. And when we left, uh, I was doing about Eight billion in um, positive Enron income, so you know their accounting is a little bit um, different. Or was <laughs> a little bit different. I don't know what that
1: different. real number is. It was yeah. in the positive somewhere.
2: So it's really probably about a two and a half billion dollar positive revenue uh, statement. But they use something called mark-to-market accounting, which allows them to forward uh, account for um, you know future business and future income and count it in today's. Um, Today's today's dollars, so um, so. But Maxwell anyway, got
1: them in trouble, sort of. It yeah, did just for
2: well. Okay. It, it got them in trouble. Not the accounting methodology is a legal accounting methodology, but it drove a behavior um, that ultimately ended up, I think, being their demise, because they were representing profits to Wall Street that were astronomical, and. If you take a 10-year deal where you're expecting, let's just say, to make a million dollars a year, but now you mark the market account it and you count it all in this quarter for eight million dollars, next quarter you've got to produce another one of those kind of deals just to stay flat. And you know what I mean? And 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 we were growing at a rate of double digit growth per quarter. So you can only sustain that for so long until you start doing Artificial things that are not proper to, to keep Wall Street happy with the growth curve that you'd represented to um, to the street. And that ultimately is what ended up being a house of cards and causing a little bit of uh, the demise. Well, I was fortunate enough that after spending roughly three years there, I, I left just before I left on September 7th, 2001. Four days later was 9-11, you know, in New York, 9-11. And then, um, you know, two months later, it all fell apart and Enron filed bankruptcy and ended up going out of business. So uh, I left a little bit before it all um, fell, but I lost a lot of money because a lot of my money was tied up in Enron stock and, and deferred compensation, which um, I did not have access to because of uh, their bankruptcy. So, um, so, that, so I ended up leaving there and um, made a lot of money while I was there but then leaving there and uh, went to work for a company called um, United Water. And I took over as president of their Southern region, which ran all of the municipal water and wastewater systems that United Water owned um, in the South. And that was everything from Jacksonville, Florida, to Atlanta, Georgia, to San Antonio, Texas, Laredo, Texas, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, a bunch of cities in the Southern region of, of the U.S. and I was the president of those all of those companies. So did that for a while, and so that kind of gives you a little bit of my corporate history. Um, and then I decided to start my own business. And you tell me if you when do you want to kind of talk about that
1: at all? Uh, we can talk a little bit about that. It was just interesting as if we, we go back a little bit in time. Um, you talked about um, especially your time with IBM, Hewlett Packard in sort of the eighties, nineties period. Um, what, are, what was some of those challenges as far as working in in a corporate setting as those big you know big names that still still resonate with people today? Um, was there some challenges that you noticed um, as being an African American in those environments, or was it um, or not, or maybe some levels to that?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think there were kind of two levels of challenges. One. Um, most engineers um, always had support personnel to support them, whether it be administrative support or technical support, technicians, or those types. And, um, you know, I was always the first engineer in that branch or that company or that division that was black. So they were not familiar, especially at HP in the Boston environment, uh, which at that time was very, very racially charged still. Um, they were not used to an engineer, a black engineer, giving guidance and direction to uh, some of the staff there. So that was a little bit of a challenge, and you know we dealt with it, and they dealt with it. And um, um, so that was kind of one. And then from a managerial standpoint, um, I think they weren't. My managers and supervisors had never managed African Americans before. So for them, you know. It, it took some time, and I think they tend to typecast you um, for what your um, potential is and what your abilities are. And so I was sort of a perplexing phenomenon because I pro- I went to a school, one of the most prestigious schools, whether it's Stanford or Carnegie Mellon, most of these guys were, did not. They went to more state school-oriented. Um, so... For them, it was a little bit intimidating. They didn't know kind of what to do with me. And uh, same thing at at IBM, when I got there, you know, it was mostly state school engineers working on projects, smart engineers doing a good job, but now you get this guy from these highfalutin schools in in the mix and they're not sure what to do with me. And so I had to deal with a little bit of that for a while. And then when you start demonstrating um, the desire to, 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 to do more, um that even more so gave them um you know uh they felt threatened you know threatened uh they felt like you were a competitor um you'd get a little less assistance a little less input a little more cynicism um but I think the main thing for me was I think you got to find a sort of a sponsor or a mentor that sort of can help guide you through uh, the challenges and then when they're When the executives are in a room deciding who's going to get promoted, who's not, who's going to get this opportunity, who's not, hopefully you've got somebody in the room that can vouch for you and is willing to fight for you, as opposed to you just being another name on a list, you know, so, um, so yeah, that's how it went.
1: Awesome.
2: So as an engineer, um, there was a a level of competitiveness that was a little more subtle, but at the same point in time, um, it was there. Just because they were, most of the cases, they were just unfamiliar um, with. They were used to laborer types um, African Americans, and not professional engineering types. So, so that was sort of part of the phenomenon that I dealt with. As I started having a management interest, that's when you know I'm not just competing against engineers. You're competing against, against MBAs. You're competing against other finance types who are all believing that they have the ability to manage certain um, aspects of a business but similar dynamic and I think it was um I think it was important to be able to understand people well enough to navigate to that through that and I think I had pretty good people skills part of which I developed because I started a business on the side and really kind of helped home my, my um, business skills as well
1: right did you find once you sort of got into these management? management roles, as you mentioned, kind of more, not quite later in your career, but um, past the kind of tactical, you know, taking projects, implementing them on the on the ground level, so to say. Um, and you get into this more managerial space. What things, did you notice some differences that you see once you're starting to be in these kind of rooms where some of those decisions and, and conversations are happening that you referenced earlier, that you, I guess, early in your career, you're hoping you have an advocate. And then switching to the role where you kind of can be that advocate, where there's some things you, what is that like for people? Because a lot of times, I mean, I can speak for myself now, sort of entering that management space. And it's a different space when you're actually in that room and understanding what those conversations are. And I'd just be curious on your take, when, and not naming necessarily which where and what rooms and whatever, but sort of the mm. or, or whatever, whatever mm. you feel comfortable. Um kind of what are some of those those moments and what types of conversations that you notice um that happen in, in those rooms, the rooms where they happen, right? The, the, the,
2: so, Hamilton. so I think in most most businesses, I mean look, they're all trying to sort through who's gonna be the persons that are our next leaders, let's just call it. And so one of the, the advice that I give to people is is I categorize people in in corporate America as either they're winners, skinners, or support. So there's people that can win business and there's people that can deliver the business. And then there's a bunch of people that just are supporting those, whether it be, you know, supporting the functions of the business itself. And what I found in general is the winners and the skinners are the two that really make the difference. And those are the ones that, if you think about it, the people that can make the business happen and the people that can obtain and acquire the business, most companies feel as though they can find somebody to come in and do the support things, whether it be accounting support, whether it be HR support, whether it be, and nothing against any of those disciplines. But if you can deliver and execute, and you can capture business, those are the two skills. And to be able to have both of those skills, I think becomes most important. And so for me, I looked for management opportunities where you could you could get the exposure so that you could check both boxes, because if you can do that, you can really run the business. You can not just be in management, because you can be in management and you can be a you know the head accountant, you know the manager of the accounting department, and that's an important function to do. But I, I had the desire to be the person making the decisions, the final ultimate decisions about the business and what was going to be what was going to occur in those businesses, and that skill had to be acquired as a result of experience in, in capturing business as well as that skill of, um, you know, actually executing and delivering on this. So I've always told people that, you know, support functions are important and they're necessary. In their career, um, you can have a meaningful career. But if ultimately you want to run your own business, run a company, want to do things that will, you know, um, that, that, you know, you've got the entrepreneurial spirit or you want to run that business that you're working for, I think you're going to have to have skill set of the commercial skill set as we call it because those are the folks that drive the business and really make things happen Uh, does that answer your question
1: no i think it does it's really really good and interesting um way to way to think of it um and to really understand this the business whatever that's large whether it's a huge multinational corporation or a larger local what have you sort of how that all that structure depends um, important depending on people's aspirations and their desires, right? Yeah. yeah. It takes everybody to make the business successful for sure. It does, but um, it depends on what you want to do and what someone's aspirations are, and so that's yeah. the kind of three, three buckets, right? The three main, so good ones. Definitely add those into the, the show notes. And
2: my aspirations were to be at the top. It wasn't just to have be in management. It was to be the ultimate decision maker in in this corporate field, which is a price to be paid. And then there's a, most of these major corporations, there's a relocation component to it. Um, There are a lot of different things that go on to proving and demonstrating your, not only your skill sets, which we talked about Winners and Skinners, but also your commitment to the business. And so, you know, those are all the prices that you're going to pay if you wanna be at the senior, senior levels of the corporate world.
1: For sure. So as you talk a bit about the entrepreneurial spirit, you know, you talk about, you know, managerial levels in United Water and and, uh, Enron and sort of these big companies and sort of a place where a lot of people would be like, you know, that's great and and that's what I wanna do and kind of, you know, tap out there, you know, maybe move up another tier past president of South Region, maybe go to whatever the next tier would have been. What kind of made you say, you know, I want to do this, not this, but I want to branch out of my own and start my own business? What was that kind of, was there a defining moment, or was it just a general undercurrent that just grew over time?
2: Um, I think probably two things. One, my father owned his own store, a small pharmacy in the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans. And he was always a person that said, you need to be your own boss. And so, you know, after going to school and, School, in many ways, kind of conditions you to get a job as opposed to be an entrepreneur. And so I, um, you know, I heard my dad and he said, be your own boss. But it always resonated in the back of my head. When you've spent 20 years in the corporate world and, you know, worked 25 years, I did actually in the corporate world. And you, and you worked in a bunch of different places and stuff like that. You realize I was president of United Water. My boss was the CEO, but he had a boss, too. You know, he had a board and we had a parent company that owned the company that we were that was based in Paris. And I just realized that you were always going to have the ability of somebody tapping you on the shoulder, telling you, you didn't do good enough. You did good. This is how much you can make. This is how much you can't make. And at some point in time, I just said, you know what? I felt as though, um, you know, I could do my own thing. I had the skill set, the knowledge, the ability, had demonstrated at the highest levels that I could do it. So why do I need to do it for somebody else when I could do it for myself? So that was sort of one. But then two, there was a unique circumstance that um, happened when I, I had that inkling. But while I was at United Water, we, one of the companies that I was running, I was running a little small, in addition to running all of the, 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 the utilities throughout the, the, that area, we had a little small company called United Metering, which was a small company that installed meters for municipalities, water meters principally for municipalities all around the country. I had just gotten to the point where I'd really had enough of the corporate game. I had an office in Atlanta, an office in New Orleans, and an office in New Jersey. My kids were growing up and um, I was just all over the place. And um, I decided I wanted to kind of do my own thing. And, uh, but I hadn't found the right opportunity until we started talking about making the decision to sell United Metering, um, United Water did, to raise some cash. And so we made the decision to sell it, and at the same point in time, um, you know, the Sarbanes-Oxley's rules were very strong strong at that point in time. So I couldn't be an officer inside of United Water and buy a company that was an asset of United Water. So I talked to the – go ahead. And just for context, the, those
1: rules are around, like, SEC-type rules? Yes. Or... I don't know what that comes those from.
2: Those are SEC rules. Um, much of it as a result of the Enron debacle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Funny that you have that tie, thread to tie it together.
2: Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. So as a result, I, um, I stepped aside from um, United Water. So I knew what the value of the business was at the time. And I stepped out and, and left, resigned, so that I could buy the business. And so it had to be an arm's length transaction. So what was crazy was they kind of, I kind of told the the folks at United Water what my strategy was was to you know to take that business and now make it a minority owned business, and we'd be able to pursue um, other opportunities as a minority business that we may not be able to pursue as a majority business. And so in the process of doing that acquisition, I guess some of my Colleagues or former colleagues like the CFO and those folks realized, wow, Troy's going to blow this thing up and make a lot of money with it. So in my negotiations with them, they decided to revalue the business based upon what they thought I was going to make, as opposed to what the business was actually doing. So long and short of long and short of it, is we never sold. We never bought that. I never bought that business. And so, I had left the company at that point in time, so I just decided that I would start my own consulting business, and so then I went into my my own business, um, and I've been in business ever since. I don't
1: think I realized that. I thought, like, it was just like I left United Water, and that was not the United Meter piece, I guess. Yeah. Of course, I was a child, so why would I know? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so what was that like, right? Especially leaving thinking, okay, I'm going to take this little piece, and we kind of have this. You'll have a foothold and sort of a, a jumping-off point to branch this new business versus now you don't, but you're still deciding to move forward. What were some of those challenges? Start especially starting out, you've been in business. That was probably what year that that, that occurred? Um,
2: this would have been 2003,
1: 2004. Okay. You know, so you know, I mean, it wasn't.
2: You know, some people might say, was it unnerving? You know, not at all. Uh, one, I had money, so I wasn't worried about you know, how am I going to feed my family? Two, I had relationships. I knew I could always get a job throughout my years in industry. And I had a little bit of a reputation that people knew that I could perform at certain levels. So I was never quite worried about that, even though many people had been sort of stained with the Enron badge. I never really kind of got that stain. One, I left early. And then two, I went right into another corporate world. And, um, I never really wore that 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 scarf like some people who lived in Houston did. You know, I was living in New Orleans, so I just it just didn't stick to me for some reason. So I always knew I could get another job. So for me, um, doing it, I felt very comfortable. I was at peace that I could do it. Um, and then it was just a matter now. Okay, what what am I going to start consulting? Here? And so I think the first project I did was with uh, a project here in New Orleans with. Lowe's, the home improvement company, um, they wanted to have us to do me to do some uh, market development work. Um, then I decided to go after a, a, a fairly large project um, in the, with the City of New Orleans for energy efficiency program, and uh, got involved in that and the bid. And there was a lot of controversy associated with the bid because some of the politicians were trying to bid rig it so that I couldn't win it so that got in the news made a lot of news and stuff like that and uh we finally were in the process of actually getting that contract and then hurricane katrina hit so we Mm -hmm. really had to start all over again after hurricane katrina and uh but we got some contracts and projects and um our signature project i think early on was um we were selected to design a recovery plan for the city of new orleans after hurricane katrina which Mm -hmm. if you understand that that means uh the city really was totally devastated and all of a sudden now um they didn't know how to reconstitute itself you know what do you do first i mean people were living all over the country um all of the infrastructure was damaged there were no schools to go to there was no roads to most of the roads weren't properly functioning everything was dysfunctioning and so you needed a plan on how to get the residents back how to get the infrastructure back how to get the city back fully functioning. And there were a lot of agendas. There was a racial component to that where a lot of whites who were in the high and dry portion of New Orleans that didn't want all of the blacks to come back. They wanted it to become a majority white versus a majority black city. So there were a lot of different things around equity that we had to do. So we were picked out of, I think there were about 25 bidders that bid to uh, to design the recovery plan, but we were selected, did it, and we did it with a 93% approval rating um, of the residents, which just thinking about getting get 93% of the people to agree on something like that. And it was very charged, very racially charged, um, but we really brought everybody together um, and were able to, to get everybody a consensus on on how the city should recover. After that we, we started growing the business and you know, other things happened and you know, projects would come and go and we'd win some, lose some, and we kept growing, growing, growing the business. Um, and then later we started buying businesses as opposed to just managing projects. So now we have what we call a ventures portion to our business that um, Henry Consulting manages in addition to projects that we um, consulting projects that we do.
1: Wow, I'm just thinking mm-hmm. Especially nowadays, ninety-three percent of anybody being approving of anything uh, is really challenging. So, I, and especially you know something as important as uh, recovery of one of America's greatest cities. So.
2: Yeah, not only was it important, but it was emotional because right. there were people who all they ever knew was New Orleans, and now were forced to be displaced, and for a long time they had no guidance on when and if they could return. And so it was very unnerving for them. Um, And as time drew on and on and on and on, and nothing was happening because they had a couple of other planning efforts that had failed and and just caused more anxiety and more angst for people. One of the planning efforts said that they were gonna convert most of the African-American neighborhoods to green space. So those people that had lived in homes and neighborhoods for a long time, like where I grew up, weren't going to get to come back home. And so there was a lot of controversy. So our planning effort took took over from a lot of controversy. And we were able to do it. Our planning effort ended up going to Congress and the state and Congress and um, ultimately being approved. Um, and it brought a lot of um, momentum and confidence back to, especially the displaced residents, um, to have a vision for how things were going to, uh, the city was going to reconstitute itself.
1: And I'm sure you, as a as a native New Orleanian, felt especially like emotionally with that, right? Because you too were impacted by by Hurricane Katrina.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, while like, yeah, well, I'm helping develop this plan, and um, you know, we we're, were the prime contractor, so having an African American firm be the prime co- contractor was a big deal as well. There was a lot of controversy about that because. Some blacks thought it was a great idea. Some blacks thought maybe we didn't have enough experience. Some whites thought it was a great idea. Some whites thought we didn't have enough experience. And we had 14 subcontractors with us. And uh, so we, it was a complex management challenge. And we, had, we were trying to connect people and collect planning input from 32 different cities around the country, which were where the concentrations of uh, New Orleans had sort of been uh, dispersed to. So yeah, it was a, it was a challenge um but it was my home so it was one way you just couldn't blow it. I couldn't afford to blow it. So um we did it right. And we did a good job and um I'm very very proud of what we were able to accomplish and um and I think you'll get nothing but positive favorable feedback on the work that was done and the results. It's kind of speak for themselves now with the city. Absolutely.
1: So what would you say um probably one of our last questions because i don't want to tarry with you too long because i know you got plenty of running around and stuff to do (laughs) my two little brothers and all that jazz um so for folks like maybe maybe if someone's listening to this who's like in the corporate space sort of maybe had a similar or wants a similar career path to you and and maybe is at a point where they think you know i'm ready i think i have skills abilities so on and so forth to make that leap into entrepreneurship what are some of the things you would tell a person like that um, if they're starting out, some tips or growing things or things that you've learned, right? You know, a lot of times people say, what would you tell your former self or, or things starting out?
2: Um, I think if, if you're in a corporate world and you think you've got the entrepreneurial bug, one, make sure your skills are tight and right. You know, it's one thing to have the desire. It's another thing to have the prerequisite skills necessary to jump out there and do it. Also, make sure you've got the financial wherewithal, the weather on uh, the early days, um, because it may take you some time to sort of build your business, your concept, your principle. Um, so make sure that you, you can afford to do it so that you're not trying to, I tell people, you can't microwave wine. You know, a wine takes time to age. A business has a maturation process to it um, that is somewhat natural that you have to be able to weather that time frame. So, um, but you got to have a plan. And um, if a person is interested in doing that, I I tell people all the time, there's a piece of software you can buy by Palo Alto software called Business Plan Professional. And I would tell them, buy it, study other business plans that they will give you examples of. But I'd also then create a business plan for what you want to do. And it's a naked assessment that really will help you understand are you really ready as you think you are for what it is you want to do um and, and and sometimes what i think some people that come out of the corporate world think too small and they always think startup versus acquisition and um I, I think that there are a lot of opportunities that folks can buy and acquire as opposed to having to actually start from the ground um i would recommend uh, corporate people to uh, subscribe to uh DealStream, which is uh used to be called the Merger Network, but it's called DealStream now, and it's just all the businesses for sale, all over the world, businesses that are for sale, all different types of businesses, and read their plans, read their uh you know their their portfolios of about their businesses. So when you see a business that you might want to acquire, you've looked at enough of them to know ah this is one that I've got an interest in, this is one that is due diligence I'm willing to take on, or This is a business that I could mimic, but that type of exposure to businesses that could be for sale that you could acquire as opposed to just always starting up is another way of uh, growing your business. My business was initially a startup, but then I ended up buying companies as well. And now as a result, you know, we've got a sort of a conglomerate of businesses and projects that we manage and, um, you know, it's worked well for us. So I mean, those are things that I, I would say, an honest assessment on your own ability skills, making sure you have the financial wherewithal um, to weather storms, but then also consider the, um, um, the acquisition side as opposed to just the organic uh, development of a business.
1: Awesome. I'll be sure to include those in the show notes so people can refer back to them. And I'll probably try and find a link to the software as well. That way people can find it and download it and look at that for themselves. Yeah. Well, wow. this has been a really interesting conversation. To say I'm I've known you all my life, I didn't probably know probably seventy five percent of the details of no. of your career. I think I knew like the biz, the companies of which you worked, but really and sprinklings of some of the especially early career stuff. I don't think I knew the submarine things. Um I knew IBM, I knew I knew United Water, I knew Enron, sort of at a high level, but not really. Um, a ton as far as the types of projects which was when you kind of transitioned to a managerial space so informative for me is no one else <laughs> um, okay. but yeah so this has been really good do you have any like upcoming projects or information you want to promote websites or anything I don't know if you have any more in that space um, or, or
2: we, not. Ha- we have a website probably needs to be updated it's just henryconsulting.com um yeah we've got a lot of things going on um uh in our business today we're in the process of developing a new retail center for one of um one of our businesses now um we have just recently partnered with a uh, another company where there is a a parcel um that is fairly famous here in new orleans called uh, um jazzland that um my my company and another company uh are going to be one of the bidders to redevelop uh, what was amusement park, and we would uh, do something with it as amusement park and uh, commercial initiative. Um, that's probably a two hundred million dollar development that we are proposing to do. Um, we've got. Uh, we just became uh, we're the prime contractors on another project for the Louisiana Watershed Initiative, which is a one point two billion dollar um initiative funded by hud for the state of louisiana and we're the prime conch one of the three prime contractors and program managers for that project um and it's to uh, help prevent inland flooding um in the state of louisiana so that's a you know that's an important project for us as well um oh we we now I, i bought a radio station with a couple of my partners a couple uh uh, a year or so ago and now we are um, in the process of doing some additional expansion and probably going to acquire some more stations very soon. Um, so we, we have a lot going on, um, in fact we're building a new studio out at a, at one of the HBCUs, Xavier University here uh, in New Orleans. So um, I'm sure I'm missing a few things, but those are some highlights of projects and, and challenges and, and things that we're dealing with now. and um, um, you know, we're, we're, we're excited. We, every day we've got things that we're working on that are growth oriented. Um, we we've been blessed that the pandemic hasn't hit us. Um, we've been able to grow our business during the pandemic. Um, some of that is just, you know, the good Lord's blessings. And some of it is, uh, structuring a business in a way that is not as, um, seasonal and is not as vulnerable to some of the economic challenges, uh, that some of the businesses may face you know so we owned some restaurants at the time and, 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 so, and got out of those businesses um, well in advance of any a few years ago in fact um, so we've you know we've been fortunate to kind of pick our spots at the right time so uh, those are those are some of the things that we're working on now um, probably forgetting some things but um, it's been fun it's exciting it's an exciting time for myself my family as well as um, um you know the employees the staff you know we 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 got a lot of growth so we're dealing with challenges associated with growth you know bonus paying out how much bonuses people going to get and you know all that kind of stuff you know not worried about cutbacks and that kind of stuff good
1: problems to have
2: yeah right? yeah yeah they are absolutely
1: well thank you so much Mr. Henry
2: <laughs> my pleasure, Ms. Mrs. Henry Watson or Mrs. Watson.
0: Thanks again to my dad, Troy Henry, for sitting down. Um, some really great points. And definitely, if you haven't already throughout listening to this, check out the show notes. Lots of great tips. I included some links to the documents and, and um, software that he referenced as always, share this podcast with your friends and even your enemies. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay in the loop when we release new episodes. Also, if you'd like to support the Victory Podcast, we have a merch page. Visit our website at thevictorypodcast.com and visit our merch or Patreon page. Also consider becoming a Patreon. This um, Starting later this year, we'll start some exclusive Patreon-only content, um, so... The only way you'll really hear or learn about it is if you become a member of the Patreon. So lots of good, fun uh, treats for those folks. I'll end this episode as, as I do every episode. Every problem has a solution. It's whether you're willing to do the work to find it. Let's do the work and be victorious.